welcome to this special ProPass webinar series. We have started a collaboration with ProPass Consortium and are publishing their webinars in podcast format so more people can benefit from their useful content. In short, ProPass is an international research collaboration platform of cohorts using Taiwan accelerometry to explore the effects of physical activity, posture, and sleep patterns on a wide range of health outcomes. Without further ado, let's jump to ProPass webinar. Thank you very much, Jason. We're going to move on now to the next speaker. We have Professor Tim Chico from the University of Sheffield. Tim is a professor of cardiovascular medicine at the University of Sheffield and an associate director of the British Heart Foundation Data Science and Beam Lead for Personal Monitoring Data. Thank you very much, Jason. The floor is yours. Thank you. And thanks so much for the invitation to talk at a really interesting and inspiring meeting. Okay, I don't have any conflicts of interest, but I, I do also want to follow Jason in thanking my uh, co-authors of, of this third editorial, Manos, Fabio, Jessalyn, Simon, Rasha, Richa, and Jason, and I'll try to do uh, it justice in the next few minutes. You don't need me to tell you that low physical activity leads to incident cardiovascular disease. You are the community that have confirmed that, and, and I think that's um, been a huge achievement. It's not just a one-way relationship and these relationships, not only do they go both ways, but they, they are complex. As a cardiologist, more often what I'm seeing is people who have cardiovascular disease and that is what's causing impairment or impact on their ability to be physically active. But of course, cardiovascular disease is not homogenous, one homogenous. Entity, there's many different heart diseases. And actually, the, these relationships, both causally, but also reverse causally, are different depending on the disease. So coronary artery disease, there's the poster child, low levels of physical activity, increase the risk of incident coronary artery disease, particularly myocardial infarction. Heart failure is caused by a range of different things, some which is driven by low physical activity, some less so, like genetics. Uh, heart valve disease is exploding because this is a disease of older people and the populations are getting older. Atrial fibrillation, again, affects 25% of all older uh, adults. And pulmonary hypertension, which is was thought to be rare, but probably affects 1% of the entire global population. So the relationships between low physical activity and the risk of these diseases are, are complex, but they all converge when they develop on an impact on someone's ability to become physically active. Now that impact might be mild, or it might be moderate, or it might be very dramatic and indeed life-threatening. And this means that physical activity is a potential biomarker, a biomarker being something that can be measured objectively and reproducibly as a characteristic of a treatment response or a disease. And this is of course obvious. So. There's very few patients I see that I wouldn't want some form of objective and reproducible assessment of their level of physical activity. And this could be used for a range of different things, whether it be prediction of disease, monitoring of disease, prognostication, etc. And I've been really struck by the rigor and thought that is clearly going into the ProPass Consortium's plans for how you measure physical activity. 
And it makes me really sad and embarrassed because tomorrow, when I go back to clinic, how I measure physical activity is with this device. And, you know, I mean, this has been spoken about before, but when you talk about self-report, it's very different to what I talk about self-report. Your self-report is at least with validated instruments and, and structured questionnaires, as I understand it. In medicine, it's way worse than that, right? It's a bunch of different questions asked in different ways to different patients across different specialists, and it suffers all these limitations, which are obvious. The type of data we obtain in clinical consultations would not be publishable in any journal whatsoever, and yet we use it in order to make decisions which are hugely influential. And that's a shame. So everyone here is in one of three groups. Most people have known current cardiovascular disease, and long may that continue. But almost everyone at some point will get symptoms that could indicate possible underlying heart disease. For example, breathlessness or exertion is a normal experience, but it can indicate underlying heart disease. And unfortunately, at some point, you either die or get heart disease. There's no other option in life. And this gives us three opportunities in these three categories to change someone's trajectory, ideally favorably. When you don't have disease, we want to be able to predict future disease and, and take steps to prevent it. When you've got symptoms of possible underlying heart disease, you need evaluation and accurate and fast diagnosis of whether or not it's heart disease and if so, what heart disease is it? And then when you get heart disease, we need to select the treatment, which is most appropriate to improve the chances of better outcomes at, at least risk and ideally least expense. And objective measurement of physical activity as a biomarker has the potential to improve all of these kind of phases of medicine. So to take the first if I went to see my GP tomorrow to say, I'm, I'm a bit worried about my risk of having a heart attack in the future. My dad had a heart attack when he was my age. They'll use the QRISC-3 calculator in, in the UK. And these are the fields which will be entered. It, it's, there's more fields now than QRISC-2. But it, despite the fact that we know whether or not any physical activity influences my chance of future heart attack, this calculator does not include an assessment of physical activity. And there's many reasons for that, not least because this algorithm was devised on routinely collected healthcare data and physical activity is not part of that. Moving on to diagnosis, I just want to take an example of heart failure because heart failure is, is this epidemic now. At least a million people in the UK alone live with heart failure and many things affect the pumping function of the heart uh, to lead to heart failure. Every evening in every hospital across the United Kingdom, someone like George will come into hospital uh, in an ambulance, desperately short of breath. Uh, and it's really easy to diagnose heart failure in George, right? His lungs are full of fluid. He might have swelling of the ankles. It's absolutely obvious and easy to diagnose heart failure in George when he comes in like this. But if you look back, heart failure goes on for, for at least months, possibly years prior to that emergency admission. And for months, George is noticing that his, his physical activity is deteriorating and he just thinks he's getting older because of course he is getting older, but in this case, correlation is not, is not causation. He starts going downhill, but still quite gradually. And there's never a kind of critical event that makes him go and see his doctor because he's a, you know, a man of a certain age in the North of England who uh, doesn't go and see his doctor. And then it really gets to a head. He's going and he goes to see the GP, but the GP, and this is not a criticism of GPs, A is less familiar diagnosing heart failure and B doesn't see this progressive trajectory and almost always 
there'll be something like a course of antibiotics, another course of antibiotics, and then he'll drop off his perch and come to the hospital in the ambulance. And when he comes to that hospital, he's got a 50% chance of not being alive a year later. And despite the fact that heart failure goes on for months and months, 80% of heart failure diagnosis is only made at that point where someone's really uh, got critically unwell. So that's diagnosis, and there's definitely a role for, for objective measurement of physical activity in helping us diagnose things. And after diagnosis, we then need to, to make decisions on treatment. So George gets out of hospital, he comes to see his cardiologist, and depending on what he reports, again, in this very unstructured and unscientific way, the clinician will decide whether or not to change his medication, increase his diuretics, reduce his diuretics. They may decide whether or not to implant a, a defibrillator, which costs tens of thousands of pounds. They may decide whether or not to refer him for heart transplant, or alternatively, they may put him on end of life care and begin to withdraw active treatment. Uh, and all of these decisions are based on a, on a subjective assessment of someone's physical activity. So, as you can tell, I'm quite keen that we introduce measures of physical activity into routine healthcare, but there are many barriers, which I'm just going to try and briefly summarize. Some of them have been alluded to in previous talks. You would think sometimes that well, healthcare has a successfully transitioned into a digital state. This is the NHS app in the United Kingdom. But Jason's already touched on this. Healthcare is already very unequal and in inequitable. But there is definitely room to make it worse if we proceed in the wrong direction. From one of the more recent surveys, 91% of households have a, have a smartphone, which means that that NHS app is not available to almost 9% of UK households. But when you look at smartwatches, it's, it's less than a third. And if we predicate better healthcare on owning these devices, then we are going to worsen health inequality. I'm not a lawyer. I've had to develop a passing acquaintance with the law. And although the law is black and white, its interpretation is, is very much in grey. So I'm going to give you my interpretation. There's a very good reason why we have to regulate the use of medical devices for safety reasons and for other reasons. But if something has, and there's these purposes here, if a device has the purpose of preventing disease or diagnosing disease or monitoring disease or selecting treatment, it is a medical device. And that requires a certain framework to be followed and a certain set of uh, approvals to be obtained before it can be used in healthcare. There's the European medical device regulation. There's now the UK medical device regulation. There's the US regulation, but it all is fairly aligned on the intended use statement of a, of a device. And the intended use will determine whether or not something is a medical device and what framework should be applied. And every device that you purchase somewhere in the packaging and the promotional materials will have an intended use statement. And, and this is Fitbits, and I've just chosen it because I think to its credit, it's very easy to find the intended use statement of a Fitbit. And it makes it clear that this is not to be used as a medical device. Manos in the opening talks referenced the Apple Watch study and the fact that this now has FDA approval or recognition of atrial fibrillation. But actually, if you look at the intended use statement of the Apple Watch in the, U, uh, in the EU, actually it's not allowed to be or not intended to replace traditional methods. So a person can come to me saying, my watch tells me I've got AF, actually just take that for granted. I then have to do the same things I would have done anyway in order to diagnose atrial fibrillation. 
But of course, this doesn't cover physical activity. This is just one function of the device. Now, patients already come to lots of us with their data and about half of clinicians use it and about half of clinicians don't. But if you use it, this is called off-label use. And this exposes the clinician and also the employer of the clinician to liability for civil claims if something goes wrong. So assuming that this is all overcome and we're allowed to use these devices, well, of course, there's a very wide range of devices and has already been discussed. There's a very wide range of accuracy and validity. And there's a framework here that Jesse Lynn Dunn and the Dimension, the Digital Medicine Society proposed called the 3V framework, which is about verification, analytical validation, and then clinical validation. And it proposes that each of these devices should be subjected to this framework. So assuming that we know they're accurate and assuming we're allowed to work, how do we make it work in an NHS or healthcare system? All healthcare systems are in this transition from paper to digital and our own healthcare system in the UK is a long way away from complete transition to the extent that NHS England alone spends over a billion pounds every five years just storing paper-based records. And this is not a system which is fit for incorporation and ingestion of digital physical activity measures. So this most recent report of acute trusts, which are the hospitals, the emergency hospitals that patients like George would go into, there's a seven uh, level assessment of digital maturity. Really, you probably need to be at the top level, level seven, to be able to take in data from, from wearables, present it in real time to clinicians, and only five out of 132 hospitals are at that level already. So we're not ready for this, but in some ways it doesn't matter because although I think there's a plausible reason to believe it would help, we still don't have the evidence. And what that requires is randomized clinical trials where the data from these devices is treated like a drug in a drug trial. And we compare the addition of this uh, biomarker to standard of care to see if it improves outcomes. If it does improve outcomes, that would lead to cost savings, which we could uh, reinvest in trying to address some of the equity uh, and equality issues. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to any questions. Thank you very much, Tim. The very nice presentation. If there's no questions in the chat, I have one quick one for you, touching on the last slide you just mentioned and one previously about equality, equity, and reality. In the point of care, how would you envision getting devices into the patients? who don't have them, particularly those who are at risk and may need them the most. Yeah. So well, if we take the three groups, the, the healthy population, the people with symptoms and the people who've got proven disease, we should just be giving the people with proven disease, the devices, they're cheap. They're the high event rate. There's, you know, if you prevent one hospitalization, which costs about 500 pounds a night, often these hospitalizations for heart failure they go on for 10, 12 days, then there's likely to be a cost benefit. So if you've got proven disease and there's evidence to believe that these devices are useful, just give them to them. For diagnosis, if you've got symptoms, you want to diagnose it as quickly as possible. That means you can loan the devices for the period it takes to diagnose a disease and then take them back again, although there may be a reason to continue it. The big problem is in prevention or, or prediction, because that's all of us. That's, that means you need to get a device to every single person in the population. Clearly that's quite difficult presently, but also there's no reason to do it because it's not, there's no proven benefits to society of doing that in terms of better outcome. 
if we, if we did have a population level study, which showed that in a reasonable cohort of patients, people who were monitored like this had better health outcomes because disease was picked up earlier, then that would generate the, the cost effectiveness evidence. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.